Welcome to Movable Dough. This is Steve Danielson. Join me each week as we explore the minds of living composers. We talk about their lives, their musical journeys, and of course, their music. For a complete archive of episodes, as well as access to the shorter segments called Movable Snippets, visit my website, sdcompose.com slash movabledoe. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Dough. My guest today is Sherry Blevins. Sherry is a music educator, conductor, clinician, and more recently, a lyricist and composer. Sherry holds a bachelor's degree in music education from the University of North Carolina at Greensboro and a master's degree in music education from Appalachian State University. Her pieces have been performed by ensembles, including the Tennessee All-State Treble Choir, the Piedmont Invitational Choral Festival, Young Voices of the Carolinas, St. Andrews University, and many more. She is the winner of the 2018 Claremont Chorale's Composition Contest. Sherry Blevins, welcome to Movable Dough. Thank you, Steve. It's such a pleasure to be here, and thank you for the invitation. Oh, it's my pleasure. So your bio says that you work that your work as a composer is more recent than the other aspects of your career. So let's explore your journey, how you got there. You're in North <laughs> Carolina now. Did you grow up in the South? I did, but mostly by accident. My dad <laughs> was <laughs> my dad was in the military, and we just ended up being stationed here quite a bit. But I did live in California, Mississippi, and Okinawa when I was younger, and then um, ended up just in North South. Carolina and Virginia as I got older. So I kind of lucked out that I got to um, stay a little close to what I felt like was home as I grew old enough to care where I was. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I like that. In the South, accidentally. Accidentally. <laughs> so, so when did you start making music? Were you doing piano lessons first? I think I came out of the womb making music. <laughs> So I remember going to grandma's house and having a tiny little rocker, you know, one of those that only a toddler could fit their tushy into and just rocking and playing my little records. So now I'm going to date myself because I had records <laughs> at grandma's house. But I remember thinking, I love this. And then when I was five years old, we were living on Okinawa and I got invited to be part of a show. It was kind of like the Okinawa version of Mr. Rogers or something. And I got to be on the show and they asked what everybody wanted to do when they grew up. And I remember saying, I want to be a singer. And then as I grew older, I thought better of that because I would rather teach than perform. Uh -huh. <laughs> so as far as composing, though, I'm what you would call a late bloomer. So I really, um, I remember my first experience composing was in college as an assignment for theory. And um, Greg Carroll, bless his heart, uh, told us all to write a song based on what we had learned in theory. And I took paper to pencil and went to town using all my theory rules and not one bit of heart or soul and struggled so much that I went to him for help. I actually sought him out in his office <laughs> for assistance because I knew I didn't know what I was doing. And I know now the reason I felt that way is because I was writing with my left brain instead of my right brain. And so around the age of 45, I got invited to conduct an all-county choir for Durham, North Carolina. And I'd been doing gigs like that for quite some time. But for some strange reason, maybe this is the product of turning 40-something, I just threw caution to the wind and said, hey, how about I write something for you all? I won't charge you anything extra. <laughs> <laughs> And, um, you know, they didn't know that I didn't know what I was doing. So they said, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so they said, sure. And that piece was actually my first published piece. And I have been loving it and composing ever since. Oh, that's fantastic. So when you were a teenager, what sort of music were you listening to? You know, a little bit of everything. So um, I actually come from a long line of musicians, but only musicians who were um, who learned by ear, who did it as fun for a hobby, um, as part of gatherings. So apparently, my great uncle is in the Smithsonian for the claw hammer banjo. Oh wow! <laughs> for developing the claw hammer banjo. So we go way back. My dad, um, growing up, he was a big country fan, and so in the house, that's what I heard. Um, 
you know, he also loved bluegrass, so I learned a lot of that as well. But personally, when I would get in the car, once I had my license, I was listening to everything. So, you know, um, Earth, Wind and Fire and, you know, those great 80s pop songs that we all know and love, um, you know, Journey, you name it, I was enjoying it. And I really feel like um, to this day, I try to keep a really open mind about different musical styles and genres. Mm -hmm because I grew up just immersed in so many different ones. Um, I did not start the piano until I was 12. I wish I had started sooner. <laughs> I ended up begging my parents, can I please have piano lessons? <laughs> and they wrapped my piano as a Christmas present and put it in the middle of the living room. And they told me it was a washer for my mother. <laughs> all I could think was that is a terrible present for your wife. <laughs> So I ended up getting a piano for my uh, 12th Christmas, and uh, I've been enjoying the piano ever since. That's fabulous. So you've spent your career as a music educator. Was there a teacher that inspired you to become one yourself? Oh, there were so many. You know, I was really fortunate to have Sanja Sepulveda as a teacher when I was in elementary school in South Carolina. And Sanja is a powerhouse. If you don't know her, you should. She is still doing amazing things. Um, she and I actually both conducted on Southern Region ACDA right as the world was shutting down due to mm. COVID. And I'm going to tell you what, it was just a big full circle moment to know that I could share a stage with her because she had such a profound influence on me. I remember her taking us on little field trips to um, do in-services for the teachers and she would have us kids model how we learned Kodai and we could sight read on our solfege. And <laughs> so I had some really great training and then I had wonderful mentors. Um, you know, I actually had Sanja in elementary school while I was in middle school, she moved up to the high school and I was lucky enough to get her again. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, it was wonderful because she's such a fantastic director and musician and, and she kind of took me under her wing and adopted to me a little and it didn't hurt that we look so much alike so, <laughs> so we got to know each other really well over the years and have stayed in touch and you know she's just a wonderful mentor but then once I got to college I was fortunate enough to meet um, Dr. Mary Beth Yoder White who was not doctor yet but she was one of my professors and actually supervised my student teaching and she um, is just a fantastic teacher and also just such a wonderful person. But she um, has a series with Henshaw Music. And when I was about to <laughs> present that piece I told you about to the Durham All County Choir, I thought I better send this to somebody who knows what they're doing and make sure I'm not about to embarrass myself. So I sent it to Mary Beth and said, hey, will you make sure I'm not about to embarrass myself? And she said, hey, would you consider letting me put this in my series with Henshaw? And I thought she was kidding. <laughs> and I was like, no, seriously, is it awful? <laughs> and the rest is history. That's great. Are there things you remember seeing your teachers do when you're growing up that you find yourself doing now as a teacher? I Yes, I would say one of the biggest to me is being inspiring. I think that it's hard to be a great teacher if you're not inspiring to the people in front of you. And the other piece of that is to be joyful and to share your joy and love of what you do with your students because it's really hard to motivate a group of people to sing together if you don't seem to enjoy it and if you're not inspired by it. So I think other than the great foundational knowledge of, you know, Kodai and all things conducting. Um, it's really just about being inspired and sharing that inspiration and, and finding joy in what you do every time you step in front of a group of people. That's great. Well, speaking of being inspiring, you have shared on your blog 65 tips for music teachers covering topics from learning your students' names to score study, sight reading, virtual choirs. Uh, we could definitely do a whole podcast where we just break down each tip <laughs> point by point. But for now, uh, let's just talk about one. Uh, tip number one, focusing your students. Do you remember the advice you gave on this topic? Let me see if I can remember. One has been a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, help me out with that. Yeah, I, I talked about breathing uh, eight times. Yes. Oh, yes. So as I got older, I learned that I was struggling with anxiety. 
And one of the things that my doctor advised me was really to use breathing as a tool to calm myself when I was in a stressful situation. And believe it or not, the stressful situations for me were never teaching or conducting. It was always other things. But I learned very quickly that I needed that. And then I realized my students really needed that, not just when they were about to perform, but when they came into my classroom just so amped up and so unfocused. And when you think about not just breathing as a calming mechanism, but, you know, it's what we teach. You know, you can't sing well without understanding how the breath works and how to use the breath. And so I began working with my students on how to fill up properly with air, how to use their diaphragm, even as young as elementary students. And we would sit through an imaginary straw and feel our bellies fill up with air. And then we would blow it out together. And I found after doing the exercises that I actually needed for myself, by having the students do them too, we all were so calm and focused to start rehearsal. So it became my go-to whether I was in class just doing a regular rehearsal or um, I found in performance right before the performance. It's perfect for everyone to do this, by the way, um, because they're so nervous and they have all this pent-up energy. And if you're one of those directors who finds your choir perfect in rehearsal and then you're about to go into a performance and you notice, oh my God, they're singing sharp. What is happening? They're rushing the tempo. What is happening? This never happened before. It's probably they just need to calm and center themselves. And I find um, eight repetitions of those slow breaths in, blowing out together. And of course, during COVID times, you might want to space out a little. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that it, it is miraculous how well it works, not just for me and calming me, but calming the entire group of students. So especially younger people, they tend to sing sharp and they'll tend to rush. And one time I saw a college group do Carol of the Bells on TV. They shall remain nameless. They were fabulous conducted by an amazing conductor and they started rushing and you know it's just like watching a car wreck if you're a conductor it's like watching a car accident you're like oh, no <laughs> so i thought oh my god they needed to breathe beforehand because they ended up like the runaway train which we're all so deathly afraid of so i would encourage yeah all your listeners to definitely breathe and integrate that into your rehearsal technique fantastic well i teach middle school choir and we'll be trying that this fall, seeing how that Try works. Try it out, Steve. It works. <laughs> All right. So going back to your work as a composer, what has been one of your most memorable experiences since branching into being a composer? Wow, I've had so many. I really, truly did not think this was my path. So when I was about 45 and I started you know, composing for Durham All-County Choir, I thought, oh, I might get lucky and some kids will sing something I write and it'll be really sweet. And then it just kept happening. And then I kept getting more and more commissions and I was even writing a new commission today. And so I am just still amazed and so honored that I get to do what I do. Um, but I would say the biggest moment for me had to be conducting a piece I wrote for Southern Region ACDA for the President's Concert. Mm. And the president's concert, um, Vic Oaks uh, was president at the time, and he invited me to come and conduct this work, which he had premiered for me as part of a children's choir festival um, back before it was published. And it got published in the meantime, and uh, Vic said, hey, why don't you come and conduct this at ACDA in Alabama? And I said, me? <laughs> you know, I, um, I just, it was amazing, you know, because one of the perks of being a composer is often you get to show up and the kids already know the music or the adults even already know the music. And you just get to put the finishing, you know, the sprinkles on the cupcake and make it pretty and wave your hands like magic and it sounds amazing. <laughs> And, you know, the teachers who teach those children worked so hard to prepare them. And it's such an honor to just stand in front of groups that are so well prepared and so musical and get to share your art with amazing teachers from all over the South. And um, my publisher was there. Steve Buck was there. Um, James Green, who's my editor with Henshaw, was there in the audience. And many of my friends just happened to be there, too. And, you know, it was such a special moment for me to to feel like 
okay, people want to hear what I write. <laughs> That's fantastic. All right. I want you to put your, your music educator hat back on. Uh, what do you see as the role of choral music in today's educational system or in the world in general? Wow. So many, so many things come to mind when you say that. Um, choral music, you know, I supervise student teachers uh, for Appalachian State, as you said, and I only supervise music students. So quite a few of my college students are choral students. And I'm often talked to them about, you know, it's not just about making it pretty, although it is that too. <laughs> we all enjoy when things sound pretty, but it's about thinking students to be critical thinkers, you know, having them analyze the text and think about what it is that you're trying to convey. Um, do you agree or disagree with this message? How can you help better convey that through the music itself? Um, it, it teaches them how to be critical thinkers. And nowadays it's all about 21st century learning in the classroom and it's all that. But it's so much more, it's a place for students to belong. And it's a place for students to feel like they have a home within a school. So many of the choir director friends that I have, you know, I hear this from them so often. Um, if you teach a student in the ninth grade, they're probably going to be with you through their senior year. And it becomes like a family. Mm -hmm. Same thing in middle school. You know, you meet them as ninth graders and as an eighth grade group, they're still with you. And, um, and you know them so well by then and you get to see them go through all those magical changes that they go through <laughs> those ages. Even better when I was teaching elementary general music, which I did for a number of years in Charlotte Mecklenburg schools in North Carolina. Um, I got to start those students off in kindergarten, um, sight singing so me's and using beautiful singing tone and learning how to breathe properly. And, and by the fifth grade, they're sight singing in harmony. And I'm going to tell you what, being able to nurture that for six years is really such a gift. Um, but yeah, music, to me, it was everything. You know, growing up, I don't know where I would be if it weren't for my choir directors and my music teachers that I had throughout my life. And so I know we're that for so many kids out there. And um, music isn't just a hobby. It's it's life for some people like me and you, right? That's right. That's right. All right. I got one more question for you before we take a quick break. Who is another living composer that you think that we should all go check out? Oh, this is so hard. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. Give me a second. I want to get this right. All right. So my, my dear friend, Matt, Matt Hazard... Mm -hmm. is somebody you should check out and i had the luck and you might go by matthew if you look him up so look up matthew hazard um i met matt at the coro composers festival in iowa and it's been a few years ago um but we hit it off instantly and i think it's because we both have that zest for life um, but I will tell you, funny story, of course, before I went to the Composers Institute, I thought, well, I don't have composer degrees, so I wonder what these other folks are like who are coming to the festival. Well, I quickly found out that I think all of them <laughs> have like many composer degrees, including Matt. And when I heard Matt's music, I was like, oh, my God, he's brilliant. <laughs> and then when I met him, I said, Matt. I am a mouth breather compared to you. So he just died <laughs> laughing. And then he's like, cheer, you're not a mouth breather. <laughs> but um, he's brilliant. And his, his work is so different from mine, but in such a fantastic way. He really understands um, texture and polyphony and um, you know how to make things deep and meaningful. And I try to make things deep and meaningful, but we take very different paths. But I'm honored to call him friend, and I think you should definitely check him out. Fantastic. All right, we'll look up Matt Hazard. All right, well, after a quick break, we're going to listen to some of Sherry's compositions. Welcome back. I'm talking today with Sherry Blevins. We're going to start today with If You Heard My Voice. For this, for a two-part choir, piano, and optional cello. So first of all, who is the my in this title, if you heard my voice? It's me. It is so me. You know, this is a pretty deep one. So <laughs> there's a funny story that goes with it. Can I share? Oh, absolutely. All right. The so is yours. Well, when I first started composing, I did not have confidence as a lyricist. I just thought, who am I to write words? You know, like 
I'm nobody. So I looked for words from someone else that I could use. And I found a poem called A Minor Bird. And I thought, that's a beautiful poem. I love this. I did some research and it looked like it was uh, free domain. And so I thought, well, I will write to this. And so this piece originally was set to those words. And uh. when it's when it premiered, it actually premiered with those words. And then when Henshaw said, yes, we're going to publish this, they, of course, sent it to legal department. Legal department said, wah, wah, this is not free domain. Uh, the rights got bought up by some language arts, something uh -huh. or another that's going to be in a textbook. So we could no longer use it. And they said, we're so sorry, we can't publish your song. And of course, I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> so my thoughts were, you know, I quickly sent them back a message and said, what if I wrote my own words? What if I said it to my own words and resubmitted? And they said, sure, we'll consider that. And so I wrote my own words with what I felt was the same, the same sentiment, which was really what I was feeling and resubmitted. And thank goodness they said yes, because that's where it all started. Uh, but the piece, uh, the words are, if you heard my voice, what did I say? And it's really about just people say they're listening or that they understand, but you know, having them say it back to you in their own voice is a really great way to check for understanding yeah. whether you're a teacher or in a relationship. Um, and then the next line is, your words are like the night and mine like day. And so really at the time, there was a lot of political turmoil in the country. Um, my heart was really breaking over the racism that I was seeing, not just on the television, but in my community and just everywhere in the United States, if I'm being honest. Um, things had become very polarized. But on a personal note, um, I was feeling a bit ostracized within my own family because I was coming out as a lesbian and became engaged to my now wife. And there were some members of my family, you know, we are in the South, who um, just couldn't wrap their brain around that for whatever reason. And I don't think they're bad people. I just really don't think they understand. Mm -hmm. So the words, while yes it's about all those things too it felt really personal to me when i put my own lyrics to it and if i'm being honest like i when i got the message that they'd reconsider this piece if i put my own words to it i carried my computer up to the bed and i sat down on the bed and i started writing started typing just furiously into my computer and my wife was getting ready for bed and she said what are you doing and i was like hold on a sec <laughs> And I finished it up in about five minutes. And she said, what are you writing so hard? And I said, I think I just rewrote the words to my piece for Henshaw. And she goes, really read it. And so I read it to her and the rest of the words are, um, well, if you heard my voice, what did I say? That was my piano, by the way. Um, <laughs> if you heard my voice, what did I say? Uh, your words are like the night and mine like day. Does my tune ring hollow in your ear, a melody that no one wants to hear? And so I was really feeling like misunderstood, like how, how can you reject me now that you've known me all this time? Like I'm the same person. Yeah. Um, and then the second part of the song, I wanted to be more hopeful because I'm nothing if not optimistic. <laughs> so the second part of the song is just listen with your heart and then you'll know as winds of change around us start to blow that music comes by night is in the day and no one should wish either song away. And it was just really my wish that even though we're different, we really should try to understand each other and appreciate each other. Um, so that's how that song was born. And I read the lyrics to my wife as I was sitting there sprawled out on the bed with my computer. And she said, <laughs> and this is her because she's hilarious. She said, you're disgusting. <laughs> and I said, I guess that means you think it's good. And she said, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love it even more now that I know how absolutely personal these words are. So we're now going to listen to If You Heard My Voice.
Our next piece today is a tapestry of music commissioned for SSA uh, for a Treble Honor Choir Festival. Uh, this piece, like many of your pieces, includes not only music, but also text written by you. So when you sit down to write a new piece where you're writing the text and the music, how do you start? What's sort of your writing process? You know what? It's not always the same. And I'm thinking that might be a good thing. <laughs> so uh, one of my pieces is called Darkness Fell. And we're, we're not going to talk about that one today. But that one started with an, a, a piano accompaniment and no words at all, just a feeling. Um, I will say that there's a story behind Tapestry of Music. And it's this. Um, if you heard my voice when it actually premiered with the words we just talked about, um, Sandy Holland was in the audience for that premiere for the Piedmont Invitational Children's Choral Festival. And it was held near the coast. And I remember thinking, I am not going to miss this. I don't care how far away it is. I'm going to drive there. So it was about a four hour drive from my house. And at the end of the festival, of course, they sang, if you heard my voice, with the new words. Um, and after the festival, Sandy Holland, who I've known for a long time, but she doesn't really know me as a composer. I conducted with her back when she was conductor of the Charlotte Children's Choir. And she approached me and she said, Sherry, how would you feel about writing a piece for the Piedmont Invitational Children's Choir Festival for next year? And we would commission you. And I was like, wait, what just happened? <laughs> I was like, are you serious? And she said, yeah. And I said, oh, well, I'd be honored and let's do it. So I got in the car and it was, you know, like I said, a four hour ride home. And I, I believe it was on a Saturday. So traffic was pretty light. It was kind of late afternoon. And all I remember thinking is how excited I was, but also how I wasn't sure I was worthy of that and how I hoped I could pull off what I needed to pull off to make it what it should be. And so the first thing that came to my mind was when I can't find my voice, you know, help me. And I was really talking to myself or my spirit or however you want to think about it, because the words are, you know, when I can't find my voice, will you help me reveal the words I'm longing to say, tear my threads of doubt, unravel them away. And, you know, that's really, truly how I was feeling the first part of that car ride. Um, and then I go into when I'm enveloped in silence, will you break it? You know, help me break through that wall of doubt and fear, um, find my shattered pieces on the ground. So there's something to me about taking something that's broken and um, struggling, which is how I felt at the time emotionally, and finding something beautiful in that. So I said, find my shattered pieces on the ground, gather up the shards and scatter light all around. And so that was my vision for how am I gonna compose this piece? I have to take all the broken parts of myself and just be brave enough to do it and just to put myself out there and be honest and vulnerable. And the chorus is then my life will be a tapestry of music 
all my tattered threads now redeemed. And in the cloth I'll find a world that I designed with patterns more beautiful than I dreamed. And um, the piece ended up being one of my best sellers. <laughs> so it turned out pretty awesome. Um, you know, it went so much farther than I ever believed. And then the, the more I drove, the more excited I became because I was thinking this music and singing it into my phone as I drove home. Yes, I kept my hands on the wheel. <laughs> um, I kept my hands on the wheel and sang into my phone. And um, and then I thought, man, I'm, I'm thinking other thoughts and it turned into the bridge and the bridge is, I will let my voice break the silence. When I speak, I will not be afraid. Um, and so it really encapsulates the journey that I took in those four hours from fearful and can I measure up and can I do this to, you know what, I'm going to do this <laughs> and I'm going to just, you know, share my soul and uh, do the very best that I can. And the very end of it, you know, I when I first sent it to somebody, I shared it actually with um, one of the teachers at the Coro Festival because it was around that time when I was finishing writing it. And uh, she said, I'm not sure I understand this last lyric that it doesn't necessarily, I'm not sure it makes sense to me. And I said, which one? And she said, the one where it says, I will sing. So there's this like really, um, these huge arpeggios and this gigantic, you know, bass line and um, octaves, you know, like huge at mm -hmm. the end. And the chorus sings, I will sing, and it's really sustained on this big chord. And she's like, I don't get like, I will sing, like, what are you talking about? And I said, no, 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 that's like my soul singing. That's like my spirit singing, um, just you know, like floating on air when I hear this um, with 300 singers singing it back at me. Um, so yeah, the dream came true. Not only did I get to hear Vic Oaks conduct that festival and premiere it, uh, with it was like 300 kids singing it, <laughs> but like I said, I got to conduct it myself um, for ACDA, which was such an honor. Um, but I'm so glad it's reached so many people. Um, it won. I read an SATB version. It won um, a contest in California, and I flew out for that premiere. Um, and I remember a lady just hugging me and crying afterwards, saying. She just needed to hear that. And I, I thought, wow, really? Like, <laughs> you know, I, it just floored me that I could have that effect on somebody through something that I would write. So um, I'm so glad you asked me about it. Fantastic. All right. We're now going to listen to A Tapestry of Music. Thank you. 
right. Our third piece today is the Star Riddle for two-part choir and piano. So part of the lyrics for this one come from an eight-year-old poet. So where did you find this engaging poet and her poetry? Oh, this is so great. She's my niece. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the words are by Marion Blevins, and she is my younger brother's daughter. Um, and she is now 12, by the way. And that, that tells you how slow the publishing world is moving because of COVID <laughs> right now. It was just released um, spring of this year. But yeah, one day um, my brother sent me a text message and said, look at this. And it was a picture of, you know, car, like construction paper cut up and stars on a black background um, with a little folded piece of paper. And he said, um, Marion wrote this riddle. I thought you might enjoy it because he knows I've always loved poetry and have written since I was a kid as well. And so I read it and my next thing I said was, can I set this to music? <laughs> <laughs> the words are, right up in the sky is where you will see me lie. All of us so bright, you can only see us in the night. Oh, all of us near and far, I wish I could see you where you are. Who am I? I am a star. And I was like, how great is that? And it was in her cute little kid handwriting. And yeah. it was a riddle. So on the inside of that little flap of paper, you open it up. It says, who am I? And you open it up and it says a star. And I was like, oh, my God, I so have to write this. So she'll kill me if she knows I tell you this. But <laughs> so I asked her, can I set this to music? And she was like, um, no. <laughs> she's she's just shy and she didn't know what all that would mean and then the very next year um, my brother was playing for her a recording of some kids choir singing something I had written and she goes that's so cool I'm gonna write something for Aunt Sherry to put music to and my brother goes you already did remember <laughs> <laughs> so she finally let me have it and uh, the rest is history. So what I did was I felt like I wanted something that would connect younger singers, but I didn't want to repeat something they already knew. And so I took the words for the poem, which everybody knows, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, and set it to new music, new melody for Twinkle, Twinkle, um, and created a partner song against her melody, which I created to accompany her lyric. And so, um, Part of why this was so near and dear to my heart is I, I wanted something really accessible where kids her age could sing it and enjoy it. Um, and my heart, you know, I love kids and I taught them for a very long time. So I thought it was a perfect fit and Briley just published that. So I'm super excited to share that. That's fantastic. All right. We're going to listen to the Star Riddle. Twinkle, twinkle, 
Okay, our last piece today is Illuminate the Night, SATB Choir and Piano. So this piece talks about overcoming illness, whether that be physical or mental. This is another piece for which you wrote the music and the lyrics. So tell me about writing this piece and, and what it means to you. So I mentioned the Composers Institute and I was dying to go. Like this was, I felt like my first opportunity to really meet other composers, to get um, feedback from well-known composers. Um, not only that, but to have a fantastic choir premiere my work. Um, but to audition, to be part of that, you have to send them two pieces of contrasting style. And I had one done and I needed a second when um, I started having some health problems. And I've had lupus since I was 17. Mm. Um, got diagnosed shortly after I got to college and, you know, have battled with it a little bit. But over the years, I've gotten some really great treatments and I'm doing well. Um, but my treatments weren't doing great right at the time. And I ended up in what we call a lupus flare. Um, and so I was kind of bedridden for about a week and um, I started to struggle also with depression because of that, um, because really I had things to do, including writing an audition piece for Coro. And I was like, oh my God, how am I gonna get this done? Um, I'm running out of time because I know how long it takes me to do a work of that magnitude because I knew it needed to be SATB. Um, and pretty difficult and in, you know a little more advanced than what I typically write. Um, now, I am on treatment now for anxiety and depression, so, oh goodness, let me just sing the praises of Lexapro while I'm here. <laughs> um, <laughs> my doctor said it's the pandemic drug of choice, and I was like, tell me about it, this stuff is great. So, yeah, I used to struggle with anxiety, but in this case, I was struggling with anxiety and depression, um, was having trouble sleeping because of it, and I remember as I'm feeling stressed, worried that I can't get this done, I uh, just took my phone and my memo app and just started writing thoughts that I had about how I was feeling. Um, and then the more I wrote, the more the words just came. And I thought, you know what, I think I'm just going to write a song about this and that might be good therapy. Yeah. <laughs> so so, you know, um, that song became really therapy for me. I wrote the piece and finished it during my recovery from that bout and that flare. Um, and it turns out to be a piece that I feel really, it, it feels a lot like me, but the part of me that I don't share a lot. Mm. And I don't know why when I compose, I just put it all out there. I don't know why. There's something about me that it, maybe it's because I'm by myself and I think, oh, I'm the only one who will hear this. <laughs> but um, yeah, when I'm out in front of people, I'm very happy and joyful and like, yay, everyone, life is great. And then when I'm by myself, I kind of deal more with the harsh reality that sometimes life is a little difficult, um, but always you have to be hopeful. And you always have to remain optimistic. Um, and that's really what the piece is about. It's about, you know, um, the lyric starts, darkness calls, its voice is sweet. The fight is tiresome except defeat. And it's really, if you're struggling with mental illness or even physical illness, it really feels like that. Like it would be easier just to stop fighting because it's exhausting. It's really exhausting to battle mental illness or to battle physical illness and to feel like you have to just climb this like insurmountable hill on a regular basis. And that's what it felt like to me in that moment. Um, and then the next part of the lyric, I said, but there's a light within me and it whispers, not today, right? Not today. I'm not going to give into it today. Um, and then the chorus, I will illuminate uh, the night and shine. I'll celebrate the spirit of mine. Though it's battered and bruised, I will not cho choose to lose. Um, and really, that's kind of my anthem for life. Like, <laughs> um, And then at the end, it's banish the darkness, feel the fire. Let the flame burn no matter how small. And it will burn without trying. It will go on despite the doubt. And the heat will remind you what it's like to feel alive. And really, that's what it's about, no matter what battle you've got going on. Um, let that little spark motivate you to keep going and not give up. 
Fabulous. All right. We're going to listen now to Illuminate the Night.
All right. Well, Sherry, what are you working on now that you can tell us about? Oh, I'm working on something so fun. <laughs> so I actually worked, I have been working on this um, heavily in the last few days. So I had the honor of working with Jason Holmes with the Cincinnati Boy Choir mm -hmm. um, this spring. And those kids are the cutest. They were so <laughs> delightful. Um, Jason hired me to come out and do a composing workshop with them. And he said, so you'll have three different groups of different aged boys and probably about 45 minutes per group. And then we'll have like a little rehearsal to all together, maybe about the same amount of time. And then we'll put on a concert, kind of like a sharing thing that night. And I was like, all righty then. <laughs> so, so my job was to show up and corral these boys into a cohesive idea that we could put on paper, get them to brainstorm melodic ideas and rhythmic ideas, and then perform it for an audience of their parents that night. And we pulled it off, but I tell you what, I am not a great enough composer that I can just improvise all that piano stuff in that amount of time. So what I did was I just kind of had chords underneath and we sang it all together and the parents loved it. Jason loved it. And so, uh, Earlier this summer, he reached out and he said, hey, we want to commission you to finish this piece that the kids started with you, and then we will um, perform it as part of our festival in the fall. And I was like, oh my God, I'm all about it. So this piece is adorable, and I can't wait to get it published because it's really all about a boy's perspective about what it's like to be a boy and a singer, like a kid who's in choir. Uh-huh. And it is adorable. They're like, um, it's okay to make, these are the kids' words. It's okay to make mistakes. Sometimes expectations are too high. Um, everyone knows sometimes we get into trouble. <laughs> it's just precious. Um, and um, hold on, I got to read this part to you because it's so cute. Um, but it's about, you know, be patient with us and let us sing we can express our ideas, let our voices ring. Um, and it's such a great message because boys are often felt, you know, made to feel like choir isn't for them or singing is a girl thing. And being part of this organization is showing them it's not only not a girl thing, it's a boy thing because there are only boys there. But you're going to write your own piece of music and hopefully have it shared with a lot of boys who feel the same way you do. And so it's it's peppy and it's enthusiastic and it just captures, I hope, the heart and soul of these kids who shared their ideas with me that day. That's fantastic. All right. Uh, well, if my listeners want to learn more about you and your music, they want to check something out, where are you located online? What's your website? I am at sherryblevinsmusic.com. And are you on social media as well? I am all over social media. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, mostly I live on Facebook because I am, I am in my fifties now. So, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not cool enough to be on Instagram, but you can definitely find me and friend me please on Facebook. And I would love to share that space with you. Sounds good. Well, hey, listeners out there, if you haven't already, please make sure that you have subscribed to this podcast through your podcast provider, and please leave a review of the show. The more likes and reviews I get, the more the algorithms will put Movable Dough on new listeners' recommended podcasts. I'm actually not sure if that sentence made sense, but you know what I mean. <laughs> so like and subscribe to Movable Dough today. Well, Sherry, it's been a pleasure to get to know you today. Thank you for joining me on Movable Dough. Thank you, Steve. It was a pleasure. My guest today was composer Sherry Blevins. If you have a recommendation for a future guest or an idea for the show, please email me at movabledoe at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving. <laughs>